Good evening. I almost said good morning. And, uh, you know, this morning I was at the gym early. And as you get older, you, you start looking at other people and you compare yourself. And now that I'm in my 70s, I look around and I notice there's not many 70-year-olds there. So I'm feeling pretty spry and good. And this morning, I usually I start off on the bike and I go four or five miles and then I go off and do some other little things and stretches and lifts and things. And I went over to the leg machine. And I was over there and I was working out and I was on this machine. And when you're working on a weight machine, sometimes because of the levers, you're not lifting as much as the number says. So if it says 300 pounds because of the fulcrum effect, you're probably only lifting 100. But I put it down to 300 so I could feel good. But I know it's only about 100 pounds. And the real weights was on the machine in front of me. And so I'm watching that, and this little Asian girl walks up there, and she, I see her all the time, and she kind of waved to me. And I'm thinking, I wonder what she's going to do. And she put on 300 pounds, real things. And I had the fulcrum 100 pounds. <laughs> so I left there thinking, you know, sometimes I feel pretty good, but sometimes it's very humbling as we, as we age and as we, we go about our lives. It seems as though there's always something to, to keep us in our place and to knock us down and remind us that, we just don't have it all together sometimes, do we? Sometimes life is complicated, sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes it's fun, and then we're just reminded that we're just humans and we just gotta laugh it off. Tonight we're, we're gonna hit Matthew 12, and we're gonna hit the last part of it. Um, if you've looked ahead and read it all, you know it's gonna talk about the unpardonable sin. And it's one of those scriptures that probably have been misinterpreted many, many times. And it goes along with two other scriptures that people talk about because they start reading the scriptures and they're trying to determine, is it possible to lose your salvation? And so when you read about an unpardonable sin, that there's actually something that you could do that God wouldn't pardon, it startles people. It gets them a little bit scared. And then, of course, there's the classic verse in Hebrews 6 where it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance against once they've tasted. And you go, whoa, that's kind of scary. And then you read in John 15, it talks about the vine and the branches. And it says, I am the vine and ye are the branches. And then it says he takes off the branches and he casts them off to be burned. And you go, whoa. They were in Jesus, and now they're going to be burned. Does that mean I could be cast off? And it talks about their fruit. And it gets kind of scary when you start taking those scriptures. Well, one thing I've learned over the course of time is that you cannot take a scripture and you can't pull it out of the context in which it was written. You can't pull it out of the chapter and say, I'm going to look at this and isolate it by itself and determine what it says. That scripture in John 15, and I'd love to talk about it, but we just won't have time. If you go to John 13 to get the context, is Jesus is in the upper room. It's the, the night before he's going to be crucified. And he's talking to his disciples, and he tells Judas, go do what you must. So he's got the 11 disciples there that are following him, and he's got the one, the son of perdition. And he tells him to leave. When we get to 15, they've left the upper room, and now he's speaking to them. And they're wondering, what happened with Judas? And so he's describing the vines and the vine dresser 
the branches. And remember, he's got in his head, I just lost one. So there's the Judas branch and the other branch. And when you read that scripture with that in mind, suddenly you go, whoa, it makes sense now. And we could do the same thing with Hebrews chapter 6. And it all kind of flows around the same thing that's going on in where we're at tonight. So if you could turn with me. Well, before we even start there, let's, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, as we open up your word, there is so much here. There are so many nuggets that we could latch on to. And Lord, just as you took those, those fishes and that loaves and the loaves from the, the little boy and you multiplied it to feed thousands, we pray tonight, Lord, that you would take the things that we share, these little nuggets, that you would multiply them across this room, that they would be multiplied in our hearts and our lives, that they would impact our families and our communities and go beyond. For your word is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that we would be pierced tonight by the power of your word, that you would teach us and instruct us and counsel us, Lord. So we thank you, Father, for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. When we started off in Matthew, probably about a year ago, we did Matthew 1. And I remember going through a genealogy with you. And we talked about the point of Matthew. And what was the point of Matthew? And if we look at John... Kelly? I left a folder there <laughs> with all my verses on it. And that might be behind you there, um, right here. I think, or it's over there. Is it on your thing there, Kelly? It's that or it's sitting right there, one or the other. It's got, got a bunch of verses on it. That's the one. If you recall the last time I was up here and I, I was sitting here and when you get older, you lose your eyesight. And I was sitting up here and I realized I couldn't see. Great, thank you so much. Ah, good. And so when I'm looking down at the Bible here and I'm reading the verses and I'm going, and I just got a new prescription the other day, I couldn't read it. So I printed it out in big, bold, yellow letters. <laughs> so there's no way I'm going to get it wrong here. But if you turn with me to John 20, 31, and this kind of takes us back a little bit um, of where we began. And in John 20, 31, he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So when we think of context, the book of Matthew, and then chapter 12, the point being that these things were written that we might believe. So his desire is that we would see Jesus as he was. And if you remember in John chapter 1, um, we have, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 1 and, and 2, we have, starting with the birth of Jesus, and then we have, chapter 2, we have the Magi who come along, and they affirm that this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Um, and Herod obviously was very concerned about that, so we've got this confirmation that he is, in fact, King. The genealogy says he has the rightful heir to the throne of David, the son of David, son of Abraham. And then we get to chapter 3, and we talk about it, um, Jesus being led off uh, to the wilderness, and he's being tempted, and he's led by the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting about that is all of us have always, we've heard Philippians 2 where it says he emptied himself and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he emptied himself and took on the form of a man. And so he submitted himself to the will of the Father. But the other side of that 
is that he submitted himself to the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and so he was birthed with the Holy Spirit. But now he's going to experience the Holy Spirit as an emptied vessel, if you would. So turn to Luke 4, 14. So this is right after the temptation, and this is um, Luke's account of it. And so he says there, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit in Galilee. So we have Jesus. He's facing the temptation. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. He's there for 40 days. He faces Satan in the power of the Spirit. He's now being led back to Galilee. And news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So as the Spirit began manifesting his power through Jesus, he's preaching and teaching, and his power is being manifested to all. People are beginning to see the supernatural visiting them there in Galilee. And he taught in their synagogues. And then in verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up and read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He healed. He relieved people, freed people from the oppression. He gave sight to the blind. He did all of those things as the Spirit led him to Galilee and empowered him and manifested his power. So Jesus was totally submitted to the will of the Father, and he was totally empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's how we started the book of Matthew. So when we get to Matthew 12, we realize, well, what's happened in chapter 11? Well, when Jason was talking about chapter 11, we realize now the people are starting to grumble. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Capernaum. And he starts saying, if the things that were done here were done in Sidon and Tyre and Sodom, they would be here today. So he casts a judgment. But then at the end of chapter 11, he makes an invitation. He says, Come, all you who are weary laden, and I will give you rest. So he makes a judgment, and then he makes an invitation. And so that mounting concern about who Jesus was was beginning to surface, if you would. You see, in those days, the Pharisees were the teachers. They had kind of a cushy little job there. They could go in, and basically the people looked to them for guidance on what to do and how to do it. If you've been doing the one-year the one Bible... And you've been reading along. I was talking to my wife this morning, I guess, and I said, can you believe all of this? I mean, just yesterday and today, you've got the wave offering, you've got the peace offering, you've got the sin offering, you got, and you go on and on. And then you've got to worry about whether you get the breast or you get the thigh, and then you've got to do it on your right cheek, your right thumb, and your right toe. And then if you do it wrong, you're taken away from all the people. And then if you decide to get a little creative and do some incense or something, you're going to be killed. 
And it says, and Moses heard from God, and he had to teach this to his sons. And you realize, wow, there was a lot of detail going on. You don't want to make a mistake. So these Pharisees are teaching the people of Israel, and they're saying, hey, the law, you don't want to make a mistake, but if you follow us and guide, we can guide you through this. So you know many of the times that Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees, they always go back to a point of law, a detail. And the people are following that, and the Pharisees are always trying to trip Jesus up in the eyes of the people. And so you, that's the kind of the background of what's going on. When you get to chapter 12, there's a mounting distrust amongst the people about who Jesus is. You know, they started out, it wasn't complete... Um, Rejection yet, but it was something that was, it was growing, it was rising. So as his fame and his glory grew, if you would, so was the rejection. It was coming up to the point in chapter 12, they made the rejection, the judgment once again, he says, this is unforgivable. Now and in the ages to come. And then just like in chapter 11, he says, but... And he makes an invitation once again. So even in the midst of judgment, Jesus makes an invitation. So in chapter 12, and we touched on this last week, and he says, then one was brought to him, was a demon-possessed, blind and mute, and Jesus healed him. And that blind mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed. So they saw the action. Jesus was out healing and doing everything we just read about in Luke 4, and everybody was amazed. And they said, could this be the son of David? And that was a messianic concept, the idea that this was the son of David prophesied to be the Messiah that's going to usher in the kingdom of God. They said, could this be that guy? Well, if you're a Pharisee and the whole crowd's saying, wait a minute, this could be the guy that we should be following. And the Pharisees are going, uh-oh. And they had tried to sow distrust. They've tried to embarrass him. And every time they did, Jesus had an answer. And so now what's left for them to do? There's the supernatural things. Everybody is seeing the supernatural here. When the Pharisees heard them, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They placed all their cards on the table now and they said, he's doing this by the power of Satan. Remember, Jesus was manifesting the glory. The Holy Spirit was there manifesting his glory as Jesus was obedient. And they're saying that was done by the power of Satan. It says, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, and he gives three answers to them. The first thing he says, he goes, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. He goes, this is absurd. If Satan casts out Satan, then he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If he's trying to grow his kingdom, he's not going to divide it and kill half of it if he wants to grow it. That would make no sense in any human sense. So that's an absurd argument. And then he goes, by the way, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, whom do you say your sons cast them out? The actual Pharisees, were actually, they would actually proselytize, and they would raise up, and they called them the sons, and they were out casting out demons, quote, unquote. Now, I'm sure that they weren't doing what Jesus did because we would have heard a lot about that, but they were going out and performing some ceremonies, and perhaps the demons kind of went along with it for a while and pretended and ran away and did things to kind of keep that story going. So Jesus said, you guys admit that that's a good thing, 
because the Pharisees are out there doing it. So if that's a good thing, how are your sons casting out the demons? And of course, you can imagine them kind of tilting their head going, hmm, that's a good question. How are we doing that? Well, if we say it was Beelzebub, now the people aren't going to follow us because we've been endorsing this. So we can't say that. If we say it's the power of God, now we're endorsing Jesus, and the people are going to say, whoa, maybe this is the son of David. So they couldn't say that. So they were kind of cut to the quick at that point. He says, therefore, they shall be your judges. He says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, he goes, so there's a choice here. It's either the Spirit of God or it's the Spirit of Satan. It's one or the other because we all admit it's supernatural what's going on here. So you've got to make a choice. And then he says, if I cast them out, excuse me, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And now the whole messianic prophecy comes to front again. The kingdom of God is upon you. He's saying the kingdom of God is here. And if the kingdom here, Jesus is that king. And all of a sudden now their minds are kind of reeling. What are we going to do with this? Because Jesus is saying if the kingdom is God is here and you're not with me, then you're opposing the kingdom of God. And again, they were trying to embarrass Jesus in front of the crowds and they were finding themselves caught without an answer. And he continues on, he goes, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you, or how can you want to enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? So he goes, if Satan is powerful, and somebody was going to cast out demons, he would have to be stronger than the guy that's controlling them. Because if he's going to cast them out, the owner of the house is going to stop him, unless he was stronger. So Jesus is saying, if I'm stronger than Satan, then I could cast out his demons. He would first bind the strong man, and then he would plunder his house. And Jesus said, that's exactly what I did. God is in your midst. And throughout the scriptures, many times, Jesus proclaimed to be God. I and the Father are one. And it says they picked up stones to stone him because he, he equated himself with God. And so this was another instance where Jesus is basically saying, God is in your midst, the kingdom of God is in your midst, why are you rebelling? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So it's kind of choose this side, choose this day whom you will serve. So Jesus has taken what they thought would be a very embarrassing moment for him, he turned it into a very clear statement to people, it's either you believe good things that I'm God and I'm doing this, or you believe that I'm from Satan. You either believe the works that I do, or you believe on who I am. And so the choice was set before them. Now, he goes on and he says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. And you go, well, wait a minute, I thought you just said this was about the unforgivable sin. I say to you, every sin and blasphemy. It's kind of two categories there. Um, sin is a bucket. Blasphemy is actually, will be a sin, so it's kind of a subcategory underneath it there. And he says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. So let's unpack that a minute. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Everyone, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Now, lest you think this is kind of a universal appeal where he's saying everybody, everybody's going to be forgiven, everything's going to happen, there's a condition, a New Testament condition on that. 
And that condition would be that you would repent towards God and there would be faith in Christ. So every sin is forgiven to those that repent and exhibit their faith toward Christ. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer. So I guess the question would be, well, can a believer be a blasphemer? And the answer to that, well, Paul wasn't a believer, and he was blaspheming. Later on, and I'm, uh, I'll get to that verse there. Um, later on, we'll realize Jesus, or excuse me, Paul's talking, and he says, when you, be, when you left the old life and you chose the new, you gave up these things. And now that you're a believer, you need to give up things like blasphemy. And there was certain character, there were certain activities that were no longer acceptable if you were a believer. And one of those things was blasphemy. And you say, well, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is saying something evil against God. You're reviling God, if you would. And you say, well, I don't do that. I don't blaspheme. I don't know of any believer that does. Well, it's, it's, it's subtle. One of the things that we're seeing here in Matthew as we keep going on is it's, there's the heart side and there's the external. There's the internal and there's that which we see. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. We look for blaspheming. We're looking on the outside. God's looking at that heart. The Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gives the principles of the kingdom, he goes, you heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that's the external. The internal is if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her already. So Jesus is focusing them continually now, looking at the inside. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. So Son of Man, this is a human Jesus. This is the Jesus that emptied himself. And theologians often talk about that period of time when Jesus had, had emptied himself. And this is, when Jesus emptied himself, someone could come along and say, oh, second person of the Godhead, I'm not so sure. No, I'm not going to follow this guy. He doesn't measure up to what I think God should be like. They're evaluating the humanity of Jesus. And even at that point, he says, that can be forgiven. So if you blaspheme against the Son of Man, if you speak against Jesus, that can be forgiven. What about, it says, all sins. What about murderers and adulterers and fornicators and gluttonous people and on and on? What about the children of Israel and all the times they brought in false idols and they worshiped false gods? Can that be forgiven? Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. And we could go to Psalms 103 where it says, as far as the east is from the west. If you go to Micah 7, it says he buries the sins. They'll be trodden underfoot and they'll be buried in the sea. Yes, God is a forgiving God. He desires to forgive. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. And what does that mean? If Jesus is living in the power of the Holy Spirit and he's presenting and manifesting the power of God each and every day with thousands of miracles, the supernatural immediately present in front of them day after day after day after day. And they say that power God has he visited us and has he empowered Jesus, that power, that God, they ascribe that to Satan. 
God says, what else can I do? It can't be forgiven. There is no, there's no more truth that we can give to them that they could be forgiven. Now, why would you say they couldn't be forgiven? Has God just decided that blasphemy against the spirits is the list that you can't do? No, because remember said part of this idea of, of salvation and forgiveness was the condition. There was repentance towards God and then faith in Christ. If you don't accept the manifestation of the Spirit of God in Christ, that he lived within him, he drew him, he put him, led him to the point of death on a cross to die, to be raised again. If you can't accept that that's what you have to believe and repent to, then there isn't any hope for you. And if you believe Jesus was working in the power of Satan, you're certainly not going to lay down your life for him. So there was nothing more they could do. So when he tells them this, they're kind of taken back a little bit. So they weren't, they had seen everything supernaturally possible. And they weren't recognized it as coming from heaven, but ascribed it all to hell. And so the spirit and the power and the energy of God that was manifest in Christ, they said, that's coming from Satan himself. There is no hope for someone that ascribes the power and manifestations of God to Satan. Now, what was the consequence of that? This wasn't just one person. This was talking to crowds, the crowds and crowds, and the crowds grumbled. The crowds said, crucify him, crucify him. There was a host of people that were against him. This is somewhere around 30 AD. In 70 AD, 40 years later, Jerusalem's destroyed. The Jews that wouldn't accept Christ, there was 1.1 million of them that were killed when Jerusalem was crushed. In 135, about 65 years later, there was 985 villages because there was a kind of a, what they called a Jewish-Roman war. Another 580,000 people were killed. Jews that rejected Christ went down into eternity without Christ. So now Jesus has got their attention, and he says, consider the tree. Consider it good and its fruit good, or either make the tree bad and its fruit bad. In John 10, Jesus is looking at this, and he goes, I told you, do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. If I, do, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. He's saying if you don't believe me, if you can't wrap your arms around all that I've shared and all that I am, believe on the very works that I do. Because he says a good tree produces good fruit. And if what I do, healing the sick and, and giving sight to the blind and the deaf can hear and the lame can walk, if all of that is good, believe on that. Because only a good tree can produce good fruit. And if you look at my fruit and you don't see bad fruit, because only a bad tree produces bad fruit. And then he calls them brood of vipers, the same thing John the Baptist had called them. He goes, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. That word for treasure there, it's the same word when we talk about the, uh, the kings coming to visit uh, Jesus as a youth, as, a, as an infant, and they brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they brought him of their treasures. It's the same word here. A good man out of that good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. In Romans 3.9, this is interesting now, because in Romans 3.9 he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands, and there's none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So apart from Christ, we aren't a good tree. We can't produce good fruit. What is good fruit then? Good fruit is that which glorifies God and glorifies his kingdom. It announces that Jesus is Lord and it furthers that message. It's a heavenly description of fruit. Oftentimes, um, I've had this when I've been in, on a trip in D.C., and one of the kids said, I would never believe in God if he could send, and this person happened to say, Mother Teresa to hell. Because he'd been told that unless you receive Jesus, then you can't. And I looked at him and I said, well, I don't believe that either. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, God doesn't send anybody. I said, a person rejects and they choose. God lays the information, the store, the treasure right in front of them. And they can choose to accept it. They can repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. But here's the point here, is that's good fruit. Everything that great humanitarians, great leaders, artists, it's all great fruit from a human perspective. Man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. The scale, as far as the east and from the west, so are our thoughts from him. He doesn't think the way we think about fruit. So when we think of all the good things we're doing and we think of people that have done great things, this is a tough one to talk about. I admit that. But the reality is, is God's ways aren't our ways. And when it comes to salvation, when he says, many said, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we heal? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You're doing all these external things, but I never had relationship with you. There's none righteous. None of us, none of our human fruit, none of it is righteous to God. We can't get there on human fruit. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Who can know it? We can't know how deceitful our heart is. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now does that startle you? By your words you'll be justified? By your words you'll be condemned? What are you saying, Randy? Well, I'm just reading what it says. It says, by your words, you'll be justified. Or by your words, you'll be condemned. And he just got done talking about a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil 
well, that means if I'm an evil man, nothing good comes out of my heart. And if nothing good comes out of my heart, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart, the scripture says, so for by your words you'll be justified, I can't be justified. Is that what we're saying here, that you're justified by words? Psalm 141, verse 3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. With an abundance of words, transgression is unavoidable, Scripture teaches. Now, sometimes we learn this all the time in everyday life. Last week, I was, we've been doing some unplanned but necessary kitchen repairs because of a, a flood. <laughs> so we were fixing that stuff, and we're getting it all done. And so when you do that stuff, you kind of buy some new things to kind of spruce it up a little bit, right? And so we're going into the Amazon, and I'm going in there, and I'm looking at all kinds of stuff that maybe was surprised I would look at. And I bought this towel rack, kind of a t paper towel dispenser thing. And everything in the kitchen that we got there was it's all stainless steel. So I got another one. I got a stainless steel one, and I put it in there proudly, and she looked at that. Now, Lance had shared something with me a long time ago that I should have taken to heart. He said, Randy, he said, when it comes to the house, I have learned there's two domains. There's the inside domain, and that's Lori, and then there's the outside domain. And when it comes to big decisions, the inside, I defer to her. When it comes to the outside, she defers to me. We still discuss, but there's a deference there. With an abundance of words, transgression is unavoidable. So we're talking to Debbie. I'm talking to Debbie there, and I said, and I know all you women are going to go, oh, I can't believe he said that. I said, I was trying to defend my choice. And I said, well, it's my kitchen too. I didn't get any points for that, by the way. I had to repent of that. Um, we shipped it back to Amazon today. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being is that every day we, we say things. And when I read that scripture, by my words, I'll be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. In your heart, you can only bring what you got. So what he's really saying here is words are evidence of a transformed heart. In that sense, when God casts his judgment, our words, or the words of those before him, will justify his judgment. Because his, those words will only come from a good heart, a good tree, or a bad heart, or a bad tree. Now, you and I will never stand before the white throne judgment where God is going to judge us. We were judged already at the cross, and for by grace, you've been saved through faith. So we have been judged. But there is that point at the Bema Seat of Christ where it says there's rewards and a lack of rewards that we may be judged. I don't know how that's going to work. People talk about it all the time. There was a, 1973, there was a guy in Britain, and he had uh, watched a TV program, and it was this sitcom. And he'd never seen it before, and it was really interesting, and it was like all in the family from from the States. So he called the BBC and he goes, do you have any more broadcasts like that? And he goes, what are you talking about? So he described it and he goes, we didn't broadcast that. 
So they found out it was from Texas, so we called the Texas TV station. And they said, when did, how do I get more of this broadcast? He goes, what are you talking about? And he described it, and he goes, we broadcast that three and a half years ago. So those radio waves have just been bouncing around. And there are scientists that say that when you and I speak, those vocal waves just keep going and going and going and going. They say that you and I have at least 30 conversations a day. We could write 50 to 60 pages every day. We would write over 260 books in a year, just of our words. If we were to talk 12 hours a day, and excuse me, if we were to be a lot, if we lived our 12 hours, so you get up at 8 o'clock, so from 8 to 8 o'clock, probably longer we're awake. But if we just spoke 10 minutes in those 12 hours, and we spoke at 200 words a minute, we would speak 30,000 words a day. 13 years of our life would be taken up by the conversations and words that we speak. So when he says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be contemned, condemned, remember his audience here as he's primarily talking to those that don't believe him. And he's saying, 13 years of your life, 264 books worth, those words coming from a bad tree or an evil heart will justify my condemnation. You can only bring what you got. Well, the Pharisees are, again, dumbfounded. They're saying, oh, this guy's really nailing us. So they go, let's ask for a sign. So if you read the next part of Matthew 12 there, go to the next part. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So it says some of the scribes and Pharisees. So some of these learned men got together and decided, let's take a different tact here. These were the learned, the lawyers of the group. And when they went up and asked Jesus publicly, those in the crowd would say, well, wait a minute. These are the learned men. They must know something about those laws in Leviticus or other places that when he asked for a sign, it must be important. It must be something Jesus should do to fulfill the law. So they were kind of being led down a path that would place a new expectation on Jesus. Before the Babylonian captivity, Israel constantly was going and making gods and new gods right after they got the Ten Commandments and made the golden calf. And they were always worshiping the Baal in different places and times. But right now, after they came back, they didn't have any idols that they were worshiping. They had a new, remember, inside, outside? They started to worship. They didn't have the outside gods, but they continued to worship, and they had internal gods now. These were the gods of their, of their own making, but it was gods that their heart could worship without anybody seeing it. And so they were asking for a sign, and Jesus said, essentially, I don't give signs to people that I don't have a relationship with. 
They asked him for a sign because they knew he had the power to do it. They had seen it for three years, the thousands of signs. They knew he had the, the supernatural power to give them whatever sign he wanted to give. And he said, for Jonah, for, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, this idea of three days and three nights, that's confused a lot of people because it says, Jesus was three days and three nights. And you go, wait a minute. He was crucified on Friday and he rose on Sunday. It was mid-afternoon, 3 o'clock, and Sunday morning. That's not three days. That's not 72 hours. Is the scripture wrong? Well, in the Jewish mentality, remember, context matters. Jesus, Jesus is speaking Aramaic. He's not speaking Greek. So the Jewish mind was prevalent here, and the idea of any or part of a day, it was considered the whole. In much the same way, if I told you all that I spent the day in the library today, and I spent, a day, I spent the day in the library on Monday as well, is there anybody thinking in here that I spent 24 hours in the library? You could, you'd be thinking, well, maybe he spent a couple hours in the afternoon, maybe he went at 10, got home at 2, you know, three or four hours. You would say, or I spent the day at the beach. Nobody thinks I went there 24 hours. In the Jewish mind, it would be the same way. They didn't think that he meant 24 hours. Though there was one place in Scripture where Paul was talking about being a shipwreck in 2 Corinthians, and that was a 24-hour day. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented. And if we were to go to the book of Jonah, and it's one of those books you kind of, right after Obadiah, he's, God tells Jonah to go down there to Nineveh, and he preaches. And Jonah began to enter the city in the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. Let the man and beast be covered in sackcloth and cry mightily to God and let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. They had no supernatural miracles. They had no healings. They had no deliverance. They had Nona, the reluctant preacher. They heard his word and their hearts were moved and they repented and God relented and didn't punish them. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Yeah, the God of Jonah is here. And then he goes in 42, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south was an area that would now be Saudi Arabia. So for the queen of the south to come up, she had to go all the way up through Iraq, all the way up and around, down through parts of Turkey, through Syria, and coming down into Israel. It was a long trek. 
She didn't have an appointment with Solomon. But she had heard of his wisdom, and so she determined, I need to hear this wisdom. And so she went, and when she, after she heard the wisdom, she offered him great treasures. And he said no, but she felt obligated because she was so blessed by it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She will stand up and judge because you won't even acknowledge the God of Solomon who is in your midst, and she traveled thousands of miles to just hear of the wisdom. When face to face with the living Christ, his death and resurrections, matter of destinies will be determined. They are facing their destiny every time Jesus speaks. In Luke 16, 31, he says, if Noah and the prophets weren't listened to, then neither will they listen to a man if he's risen from the dead. He said if they won't listen to them, they won't listen, even if a man is raised from the dead. So they were trying to embarrass Jesus, and again and again he reminds them that they are lost. There's a judgment awaiting them, and God is merciless to those who have called the Son of God a force of Satan. When an unclean spirit, verse 43, goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And you go, where does this come in? This seems like he's kind of going in a whole different direction. We're talking about the Pharisees here. And the Pharisees had a gospel of morality. It said if you do all these things, you keep all these laws, if you obey the details, then God will honor you. And you need to obey them the way we say you should obey them. So they took God's laws and they multiplied, amplified them to a point that it was becoming arduous and no one could keep them. But that's what they did. So when a person wanted to reform their ways, if you were one of the lost souls of Israel and you listened to the Pharisees and you would reform your ways, the spirit would be kicked out when he comes back, he finds it swept and put in order. See, in those days when John the Baptist came, he came for a baptism of repentance. And he said, I prepare the way. If you go to Acts chapter 19, um, 1 through 5, we see the Paul's at Ephesus, and he talks about the baptism. They said, hey, were you guys baptized? And what baptism? And they said, well, the baptism of Jesus. He goes, we haven't heard of that baptism before. They had a baptism of repentance, but they didn't know when they were thus baptized and the signs came and followed. So there were those, that, the Jews, that understood there was a repentance of baptism and they would start to line themselves up externally, but they hadn't yet accepted Christ. They weren't willing to do it. In fact, when you get to Hebrews 5 and 6, that was the point. They had been raised up in all these traditions and they had heard about the gospel, heard about Christ, but they weren't willing to make the decision to choose him, to accept him. Seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the state of the man is worse than the first. 
In Ephesians 3.17, we read, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. That word for dwell there is the Greek word kato or kato. And it means to settle down, kind of hunkering down. It's, if it was, if I can, if it was Valentine's Day, it would be the man and the woman on a couch, and she kind of nuzzles into his shoulder, and they just kind of settle down in there together. It's this idea, it feels very, very comfortable there. You belong there. The seven spirits more wicked, and they enter and dwell there. They settle down. You get yourself cleaned up, but you leave it empty. You don't replace it with the Christ, the gospel that needs to save your soul, and you leave it that way. And so they come back in, and now it's worse than it was before. So you have this comparison, the Pharisees, the gospel of their morality versus repentance in Christ. And without Christ, your situation is worse. Verse 46, while he was talking to the multitudes, behold, his mothers and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Now, when you, it says brothers stood, in Mark 3.21, it says, but when his own people heard about this, the things that he was doing, they went out to get hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Even his own. In John, I think it's 1.11, it says, he came to his own, and those who were his own received him not. Those who were his received him not, his own brothers and family. And in John 7.5, it says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, that's not a permanent condition. If you go to the book of Jude, one of his brothers, he says the Jude, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he did come around. But when Jesus was walking before the resurrection, they didn't see it either. Then one said, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. And I can only imagine being one of six boys when one of them, we were all playing baseball, and one of my brothers said, Randy, mom wants to talk with you. And all the guys around saying, Mommy wants to talk to you. <laughs> and so, you know, it was very embarrassing for them to say, Mom wants to talk to you. You don't say that in a bunch of guys. So for them to say your mother and brother seeking to speak with you, that was a point because they didn't believe it was almost embarrassing for Jesus. And you can sense his response here. In his response, he says, But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, obviously, Jesus knew who his family was. It's not saying, I don't know who they are. Point them out to me here. It's not what he was saying here at all. But, again, our, our flavor of the diet is inside, outside. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the inside. You ask me who on the outside is my brother and sister, and I'm coming back with you and saying, but who on the inside is my brother and sister? So he answered the one who told him, he said, who is my brother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my brother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So I guess the question is, is who really has intimacy with Jesus? Is it the guy that's reformed his life? He's got his morals all lined up here, but he's lacking 
the vibrancy of relationship with the, the, with the Christ, with Jesus. In John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in Matthew, this is the last verse here, Matthew 17, 5. This is a fabulous way of how the scriptures work together and things we see in the Jewish traditions and things. But in Matthew 17, 5, and it's, it's said again in Matthew 3.17 as well. But 17.5, he says, While he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. You could look up the Greek word for hear him, and then you would go to the Hebrew, and you'd say, Well, what was the Hebrew equivalent? What, what would a Hebrew mind or a Jewish mind think? There is no word to describe the Greek context because the Greek, it says, to hear, to listen, and to obey. The Hebrew doesn't have a word for obey. They just say Shema. And you've heard of the Shema. You know, here, originally, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. They say it in the morning, they say it at night, the Shema. If you hear, as he's saying, hear him, the idea is you hear and you obey. The two go hand in hand. It's not two separate concepts. Hearing and obeying is what you do. That's why Jesus says to the churches, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Hear and obey. So the idea here at the end is that hear my father, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Who's the one that my brother, my sister, my brothers, my mother? He's the one that does the will of my father. And my father says, I'm pleased with my son. I honor my son. I'm well pleased. In the beginning, day one, God says, and it was good. Jesus, he said, he is good. The one that does the will of my Father is the one that acknowledges, as I do, that Jesus is good. So Jesus brought in the kingdom, and they rejected it. What happens to the kingdom now? Because it had been prophesied. They were all waiting for the kingdom. He's going to come back and do all these things, and he came back. It was promised it was going to be on earth. Well, he was on earth. In some theological terms, they call this the pause because now Israel has rejected the Messiah. So there's a pause going on. But if you were in the Old Testament, it's not described what happens during the pause because we know that Israel is going to accept the Redeemer. We know that at one point in Revelation, all of Israel will be saved that's left there. God will set up his kingdom on earth. We know that's going to happen when? The second coming. So in the midst of this pause, and I haven't discussed this with Lance ever, but recognize this. Israel was supposed to accept their Redeemer, their Savior, their Messiah, but they didn't. They rejected him. So God put the pause. He ushers in this church age, he brings in this mystery that wasn't described, 
And then at the end of a period, he's going to bring Israel back. He's going to have the evangelists. He's going to have the angels come down. And Israel's going to have a chance to receive the Messiah. And he's going to set up his kingdom. That's going to, he's going to deal with Israel when he does that. There's no reason to have the church there. So the church is raptured away. And then God is free to deal with Israel just as he promised that he would. So when we get to Matthew 13, we'll start there the next lesson. Recognize that now the kingdom isn't there. So Jesus starts out when he takes the parables. One of the three parables that's in all three synoptic gospels is the parable of the sower. It's the earliest one whenever it started there. And they call these the kingdom parables. So it's what's going on now with that kingdom. And now when you see the sower, it talks about the different soils and the good soils. Remember, he already talked about this unforgivable sin and the people. And we talked about how in John 15 and salvation and Hebrews, all of that is now on the forefront as they begin going into Matthew 13 and the parable of the sower and the kingdoms. You know, you've got, I won't go there. So Matthew 12 ends up with the promise, offering relationship once again to those that do the will of my Father. There's a huge judgment on the Pharisees and on those that don't believe. But God once again offers an opportunity for relationship for those.